0: Well, where do you turn, where do you go, what do you do when things get hard, when things get really, really hard? It could be a physical place. I know for many of you, when trials come, when things get hard, you, you literally flee to the mountains, right, and I'm, I'm there with you, right? You go to the mountains and you get lost for two hours and you come back and you have some perspective on things. For others of you, perhaps you go to a, a substance, And we know that in COVID, uh, alcohol usage and drug usage has just skyrocketed. How do we deal with this situation? Well, let's just use. Or, Or maybe you turn to a familiar pattern of thinking. Maybe it's not a place. Maybe it's not a thing. Maybe it's a familiar pattern of thinking. You get stuck in this rut of things never work out for me. Of course, this is happening to me. I'm no good. Everyone's out to get me. This stuff always happens to me. Where do you go? What do you do when things get really, 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 really hard? Uh, Whether you've been in a church or not before, if this is your first time gathered together, welcome here. Whether you've been in a church or not before, you're likely familiar with the story of David and Goliath. My kids yesterday were doing some uh, role-playing, some drama for the grandparents and the aunts and the uncles, and, and they dramatized the David and Goliath bit for a section of that play, which morphed into some Power Rangers for, for another section, and then sort of melded the two in between. The David and Goliath story is, is a well-known story to many of us. Goliath, the champion of Israel's enemy, this Philistines, this monster of a man, Right? And yet, with the help of the Lord, David kills Goliath, rescues his people from the Philistine threat, becomes this national hero. You can find that story, if you're interested, in 1 Samuel chapter 17. There is, however, another story about David. Another story about David that happens only four chapters later. Only four chapters later. Except in this story, uh, There's no apparent victory, only an apparent loss. There are no adoring crowds in this story, only like deafening loneliness and silence. I want to invite you to read with me the story we find in 1 Samuel chapter 21. In 1 Samuel chapter 21, you can go there in your Bibles now if you'd like, we find this story. It takes place, as you can expect, after David's triumph over Goliath. In fact, there's been a number of of military and personal victories for David. David's life, we could say, is is up and to the right. It's going very, very, very well. But in jealousy, King Saul has turned against David and is trying to kill him. The golden boy, as David is and was, is now on the run. We pick up the story in 1 Samuel 21, verses 10 to 15. Read there with me. If you don't have a Bible, you can look on the screen. 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 10 to 15. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. You'll notice in our uh, our psalm, there's a superscript right below or right before rather our text. Gath is referred to. That will become apparent in just a bit. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands. Notice that David is in their hands now, he's a captive of the Philistines, and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his, his spittle run down his beard. And then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen? that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence. Shall this fellow come into my house? Consider with me in the span of four chapters, how David has fallen from national hero to groveling madman, from wielding Goliath's sword in victory to having now grabbed it on his way as a refugee on the run. From the Philistine slayer to now, at least for a moment, in Philistine custody. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Where did David go when things got hard? We don't need to guess. We don't need to wonder or hypothesize. Psalm 56 tells us. So friends, are you going through something hard? right now, something even unjust right now. Well, lend me your ear and hear the words of Psalm 56. Our first point this morning is simply titled Trials. Trials. Psalm 56, verses 1, 5 to 6, reads like this. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. All day long, they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps, as they have waited for my life. I think it's important to note the particularity of David's suffering this morning, David is crying out to God for grace and mercy from evil men who are filled with pride. Evil men filled with pride. Men like Saul, who don't like David's rising popularity. Uh, Men like Doeg the Edomite which you encounter, who you encounter in 1 Samuel, who who has killed all these priests now who assisted David in his flight. Evil, proud men persecute him, attack him. And David envisions these men, get, get caught up in the poetry with me. He envisions these men like relentless predators. Did you hear it? All day long, an attacker oppresses me. All day long, they injure my cause. All their thoughts, not some, all their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch. They wait. Why? Because they're proud. They're proud. A few weeks ago, Heath said something that was very, very helpful. He said this. He said, all suffering is the result of sin, but not all suffering is the result of your sin. And the suffering and the trials I want us to consider today are those that are not only not a result of your sin, but actually the suffering you endure when you are being obedient, the suffering you endure when you're doing everything right. To read David's story up until this point in First Samuel, and that's important to say that, up until this point in First Samuel, is to read a story and a life of, of remarkable obedience, a remarkable faith and, and trust, a, a story that if we're honest, we do really well to, to emulate. Uh, to follow. Nevertheless, despite David's apparent goodness and obedience and faithfulness, where does he find himself? The prey of proud men, drooling, clawing, just looking to survive. And what Psalm 56 does tell us is that our trials are not always a result of our sin, but more than that, more than that. Psalm 56 tells us that if we are obedient, we will experience trials. We will suffer. And the New Testament makes this abundantly clear. Jesus makes this abundantly clear for us. In Matthew 10, Jesus is sending out his disciples. And I don't know if you've ever done like a, like a pump up speech before, if you're an employer or like on a team, but pump up speeches are supposed to go a certain way, aren't they? Like be excited. We're going to win. Here's the vision. Here's the goal, right? You, you hit your head against their head. Ah, you yell. There's a pump up speech, right? You guys look at me like you've never seen, you know, remember the Titans before. The pump up speech. Jesus gives the worst pump up speech ever in Matthew 10, ever. He's talking to his disciples, he's sending them out, and he is preparing them for a certain kind of life. And I want us to just listen in Matthew 10 to what Jesus says. And hear how it parallels David's experience. And ask yourself this very simple and kind of heart-wrenching question, is this the life I'm expecting? In Matthew 10, in the worst pump-up speech ever, Jesus says... Disciples, you are going to to places that will not receive you, will reject you, not celebrate you, but reject you. That's Matthew 10, 14. Jesus says, disciples, I am sending you out as what? Sheep amongst wolves. That's Matthew 10, 16. The speech gets worse. He says, disciples, men will deliver you over to courts, flog you in their synagogues. You will be dragged before governors and kings. Brother will deliver brother over to death. The father his child. And children will raise against parents and have them put to death. That's Matthew 10, 17, 18, and 21. Jesus is not done. The disciples are super motivated, right? He says, disciples, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. It's Matthew ten twenty two. He says, all this will happen, I'll tell you why, because you are my disciples, because I am your master, and they have maligned, mocked, and they will murder me. Many of us, myself included, are treasuring and holding close Visions of this life, visions for this life that are not given to us by Jesus, but given to us by someone else. And maybe our parents just get a good job, right? Just buy a house, start building that equity, right? These are the the steps you should take. Our world, you deserve the jet ski, I've already talked about the jet ski in a sermon already. I feel like it's it's a bit revealing of my heart. I was on vacation recently, all these jet skis drove by. I long for them. The world says you deserve the jet ski. You deserve the lighthouse, right? You deserve the new car, our flesh. I just want an easy life. Listen, Christ City. When we view trials as unexpected unanticipated, unwanted barriers to the good life, we remain miserable and unsatisfied and grumpy and frankly, not nice to be around. But when we begin, with the help of the Lord, to see trials as these God-ordained, God-blessed events designed to move us into a place of deeper trust, then Then we find life. Then we find joy. David invites us now to move from trial, and this is point number two, to trust. From trial, now to trust. Look back at Psalm 56 with me. In response to these evil and proud predators, David prays, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. Can we just stop for a second? If you're a kid in the room, can you look this way for a second, kids? Look this way. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you is a great piece of scripture to memorize. Actually adults, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you is a great piece of scripture to memorize. Keep on going. In God, whose word I praise. In God, I trust I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? For their crime, will they escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossing. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back. In the day when I call, this I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? David's plea for grace, for mercy, is not directed to to the universe, to some nebulous, unnamed God. No, he directs his prayer to Yahweh. Yahweh, have mercy on me. In verse 10, we find this rare instance in the Psalms where we have the personal name of God, Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of Israel. It's in Yahweh in the midst of trial who David trusts. And I want us to consider this trust, if we can this morning, from both sides, both David's side and the object of David's trust who is Yahweh. And so first, from David's perspective, notice Notice, David's trust does not happen because of a logical conclusion about the situation that he's in. Nothing circumstantially has changed for David. Nothing circumstantially has changed. And yet David trusts. You and I don't think like David. We think like this, when things are hard, despair. If God comes through, okay, then trust. When things are hard, despair. If God shows up, if he does something, if he earns it, then I'll trust. Then I'll have faith. But for now, I'll just despair. Not only is this not the faith of David, this is not the faith of the Bible, Sorry, David demonstrates for us what one commentator calls a defiant faith. A defiant faith. Even though I live in the midst of terror, I will trust in God. Now notice, just because it is a defiant faith, it doesn't mean the faith has no basis. Look back at Psalm 56. Notice that David's trust is yes in God, but in God whose word I praise. Once more, in God, whose word I praise. In the Lord, whose word I praise. David's faith, his trust is in the God who spoke to him, who spoke to Israel, who's acted in history, who's acted in our lives, who's spoken to us. See, David's faith may be defiant, but it's not deaf. It's defiant, not deaf. He has heard and filled his mind and his heart with the glorious acts of Yahweh. He, he's filled his imagination with what Yahweh has done for him. He's meditating on the law of God and enjoying who God is. And it's precisely because David is not deaf to God's word. That he is able to defiantly pray in the midst of trial. This might surprise you all, but believe it or not, back in the day, back back in the day, I used to be a lifeguard. I used to be a lifeguard. Daniel, that laugh was a bit too pointed. And one of the things we used to say when we were lifeguarding uh, is, the time to put on your life jacket is not when you're drowning. It's not when you're in the water with you know, water coming to your mouth and you're, and you're gasping for breath, that's not the time to put on the life jacket. The time to put on the life jacket is on the shore. When things are calm, when the waves are still, that's the time to put on the life jacket. Friends, if you're not in a season of trial right now, now is the time to clothe yourself with the word of God. It's not when you're drowning. Now is the time to encounter him in his revelation. Because trials are coming. And Jesus promises us that. And in that moment, who will you trust? Put on your life jacket while the waters are calm. Which leads us now to the other point in our trust. We look at Yahweh, who is the object of David's trust. Notice the dynamic that is occurring in this psalm. There's a dynamic that's very, very important occurring in this psalm. In this psalm, someone is becoming very big and someone is becoming very small. Someone is becoming very big, and someone is becoming very small. Namely, God is becoming very big, and the appropriately titled flesh, or mere man, mere mortals, are becoming very, very, very small. God, the object of our trust, is beautifully and gloriously and magnificently portrayed here as the God of justice. Look at verse 7. For their crime, will they escape? What a question. How many of us have asked that question? For their crime, will they escape? And David cries, In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. The answer to David's rhetorical question is no. No, 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 they will not escape. They might prosper in this life. They might even kill David. But the God of all the universe, as Abraham asked all those years ago, will do what is right and good and just. But not only is he the God of justice, but the very next verse reads, look at verse eight. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? In our trials, we must see God as a God of justice, grand, beautiful, magnificent. And again, with a verse that should be memorized by each one of us, at the very, in the very same breath, he is the God of compassion. Yahweh, a God of justice who counts every evil, and Yahweh, a God of compassion who counts every tear. What a big, glorious, worship-inspiring vision of God David brings to us this morning. God is becoming very, very, very big. See, there's a problem with the question, why do bad things happen to good people? There's a problem with the question why do bad things happen to good people? Uh, the Bible tells us that none of us are truly good. Even David, the picture of obedience up until this point, uh, he'll go astray. David, spoiler, will mess up in significant ways. David is suffering here unjustly, but David, it's coming, will suffer justly and, and greatly for sins that he committed. For evil he did. And if God is to be just, as we've just seen, right? David's wickedness and Saul's wickedness and Doeg the Edomites, slaughter of the priest, it must be judged. It must be punished. It has to. And yet, Yahweh is at the same time the God of compassion. And these two things... God's justice and his compassion appear to be at an impasse, never to be reconciled until we encounter the cross of Christ. See, truthfully, this might upset some of us, but bad things have only happened to a good person once. Once. At the cross in this historical moment, God proves David's prayer to be true. How do I know, and and how do you know, that he sees my tossings on our bed? How do I know, like really know, that he counts my tears? How do I know that he really knows that he's made a record of all my evils, of all the evils done against me rather? And the answer the Bible gives us is because of Jesus, because of the cross, where justice and compassion kiss. Do you see the big picture of God this morning in Christ City? In the midst of trial, our view of God must increase, and our view of the power of man must decrease. But the reality is the exact opposite happens. People get big and God gets small. People get big and God gets small. Our circumstances get big and overwhelming and God gets small. I want to go back once more to Matthew 10. After Jesus says all these things to his disciples, In the worst pump up speech ever, maybe sensing or anticipating in their hearts this big people, small God dynamic, he says something very similar to what David says in Psalm 56. Jesus says this And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Stop there. He's a God of justice. He will do what is right both now and into eternity. Let's keep on reading. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Or the God of compassion? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. God is just. And the power of your enemy this morning is nothing, nothing, nothing compared to the eternal power of God. And God is compassionate. Even the the hairs of your head are all numbered. Have you got it reversed this morning, Christ City? Are people big and God small? Let me invite you right now in the quietness of your heart, to ask the Lord for forgiveness, to repent, ask that his spirit would increase our view of him in our hearts. This is the key to defiant faith, to defiant trust, an increasingly growing and glorious vision of who God is, the God of justice, who is also at the very same time, the God of compassion. And it's a vision that always leads always leads when properly seen to thankfulness. Trials, trust, and thankfulness. Our third and final point, let's read verses 12 and 13 together. David says, I must perform my vows to you, O God. I must, I must. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling. I may walk before God in the light of life. See, if trials are an inevitability in the Christian life, and they are, so too is our salvation. Trials are inevitable, but so is our salvation. God will deliver us. Vindication is not promised in this life, in this age, but we are promised life in the eternal age to come. In John's Revelation, the very last book in your Bible, we encounter a book once more. Once more, we read about a book. A book where in the name of every person who belongs to Christ is irrevocably written. A book where our name cannot be blotted out or crossed out or erased. A book our enemies don't have access to, can't log in to, can't write in, where our enemies' accusations and slanders don't make the page. There is this eternal book when the final word pronounced over us by Christ becomes the only word that we hear for all eternity. This is a salvation promise to us. And in view of this, we are to be an abundantly thankful people. Thankful people. And here's where I need to confess I am not always this person. I am a person, if I'm very, very honest, who allows my trials to, to, to turn me into a grumbler. A grumbler. It's complaining, like the Israelites in the desert, allowing other people to get very big and God to get very small. And I just grumble and grumble and grumble. And that's sin. It's not just like an unhealthy way to deal with our trials. It's sin. I want us to see that. From one grumbler to other grumblers, we have to see that. Are things hard? Yes. Our faith is not deaf to the realities of suffering, but it is defiant. Defiant. And defiant faith is always proven, always shown in thankfulness. If the fruit is thankfulness, the root is defiant faith. And if you're a grumbler this morning, like me, we can together ask God for forgiveness. We can together ask him to impress upon us the glory of our salvation, both now and to come in Christ. But here's the second thing. First thing, don't be a grumbler. Second thing is this: there is something unbelievably attractive and winsome about a community of people who seek refuge in the midst of trials, not in alcohol or drugs, or cars. Or houses, or sex, or whatever, but who seek refuge in the midst of trials with defiant faith in God. There is something incredibly winsome and attractive about that community. Listen, David, not long after he's delivered from the Philistines, who now believe that he's genuinely insane, right? Long beard, spit, cr- like, you know, scratching at the door kind of thing. David soon finds that he's not alone, that he's not by himself a group of people begin to gather to David. And listen to how these group of people are described. In 1 Samuel chapter 22, verses one to two, David departed from there. He's been rescued. He's been saved. And he escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And look at verse two of 1 Samuel 22. It's a beautiful verse. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt And everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. See, a community that accepts and believes that following Jesus will necessarily result in trials. A community that has defiant faith in the God of justice and compassion in the midst of their circumstances. A community that does not grumble or whine or complain but sets their hope on their names being written in the book of life. A community like this acts as a refuge for all who are broken, all who are suffering, all who are going through trials, all who are hurting. This is the type of community that God uses to do big things. Those 400 men Poor, distressed, hurting men would change the course of Israel's history. And now, in Christ, God has chosen weak and frail men and women and children to further his kingdom. He's chosen, as Paul says, the weak things of this world to shame the strong. See, turning to Christ in the midst of our trial It's not only for us. It's not just for me. It's not just for you. But it is for a world that is watching. A world full of people who are hurting. A world that wants to know how will they respond? What will they do? Will they join me in grumbling? Or will they have defiant faith? When we turn to Christ... And Him alone, when things get hard, really, really hard, we are saying to the watching world, and you can turn to Him too. And you can turn to Him too. Would you join me in praying? So, Father, we and I have come to you this morning seeking forgiveness for the ways in which in my trials I have grumbled. Times I have sought refuge in things or people other than you and I ask Lord that you would forgive me I pray Lord that you'd make me and you'd make us a community who suffers really well who has a defiant faith who when things are going really well are quick to clothe ourselves with the word of God that we might withstand in the day of tribulation Father, would you form us and shape us, not just for our benefit, not just for our walk with you, but, but for the sake of this community that doesn't know you, the people around this building who don't know you. And would you glorify your name in East, Van and beyond, we pray, amen.